Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Will Oremus. And I'm April Glazer. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then, coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, February 19th. On today's show, I'll take a quick look at the fallout from Amazon's announcement last week that they're abandoning plans for a new headquarters in New York City. Some celebrated that as a victory. Others mourned a missed opportunity. Still others were mad that Amazon took its ball and went home rather than negotiating a fairer deal. Then April will talk with Fane Greenwood from the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative, where she focuses on the role of drones and data-intensive technology in foreign aid projects. Greenwood's latest piece for Slate is headlined, why humanitarians are worried about Palantir's new partnership with the UN. And as always, we'll end with Don't Close My Tabs, some of the best things we saw on the web this week. That's all coming up on If Then. Remember when local leaders across the country spent 14 months fighting to lure Amazon to put its second headquarters in their city? People were placing bets on which city would win. Well, now we can finally congratulate everybody out there whose bet was... Actually, Amazon will pick two cities, New York and D.C., but New Yorkers will push back on the terms of the deal. Amazon will suddenly pull out, but it's still going to hire lots of people there. And oh, also, it's putting new offices in Nashville. Not anyone's intended outcome, but here we are. It's also possible, of course, that we still haven't seen the last twists and turns in this fiasco. But let's take a look at where it leaves us for now. To some, Amazon's pullout was a loss for New York City. It was a loss not only of tax revenues and economic vitality, but of a major foothold in the 21st century tech economy. Others saw it mainly as a loss for Amazon, which somehow managed to misread the room even after a 14-month process devoted to finding the most hospitable possible landing spot. In New York, they thought they'd found one that came with not only $3 billion in tax incentives and the support of local and state leaders, but also a literal landing spot for the helicopter of CEO Jeff Bezos, the world's richest man. Instead, Amazon ended up not only wasting its own time and resources, but casting itself as a symbol of plutocracy and corporate greed. As Bezos biographer Brad Stone wrote in Bloomberg, in retrospect, the helipad was probably a bad idea. Even some New Yorkers who had fought the deal on the grounds that the incentives were too generous were angry when Amazon withdrew. State Senator Michael Gennaris was quoted as saying, like a petulant child, Amazon insists on getting its way or it takes its ball and leaves. Now Gennaris is having to defend his role in Amazon's pullout to constituents. But what if this fiasco isn't the lose-lose that it's being portrayed as? Certainly it was a victory, at least for some of the activists who didn't want Amazon in Long Island City, Queens in the first place, because they saw it as a corporate giveaway at the expense of local communities that would be pushed out. That sentiment rang out loud and clear at a New York City Council meeting last December. Nothing but the truth in your testimony today and in your response. But there's another broader set of winners here that's being overlooked, and that is pretty much everybody other than Amazon or New York City. For decades, powerful companies like Amazon have been playing cities and states against each other to get special favors for projects, factories, and headquarters that they had to build anyway. We talked in November with Tim Bartik, a senior economist at the Upjohn Institute, about how these deals can go south, even for the cities that sign them. Here's a clip from that interview. Well, the worst case scenario would be that essentially employment and population both go up by the same percent. So you haven't improved your labor market at all. And a still worst case scenario would be what if you paid for the incentive 
by cutting back on, say, public schools. I mean, there's more to economic development than handing out cash to companies. What, what really drives a, a local economy? I mean, it's, it's a variety of things, but the skills of the local workforce are absolutely key. If you have lousy schools, that, can, that, that has more consequences for your long-term economic development than whether or not you hand out a lot of cash to a few big companies. But the real evil of it was, if your city didn't play that game, then you were just out of luck because you knew every other city would. Amazon, by making such a public spectacle of this process, inadvertently called everyone's attention to the fundamental inequity of it. From now on, it's hard to imagine any city's leaders going through a bidding process like this without having to at least think hard about the potential backlash they could face if they give away too much. As for companies, they'll have to think in advance about the PR hit they take when they shake down cities for tax breaks. In other words, the incentives have changed, even if only a little bit. And as my co-host April wrote in Slate, by standing up to the deal in New York, activists there provided a blueprint that other cities can follow in the future to oppose similar deals. Amazon's HQ2 search was an ugly process with a suitably ugly end. But if the result is that other companies and cities think twice before trying anything like this again, then maybe we'll all be just a little better off. Next up, we'll have April's interview with Fane Greenwood to talk about the shadowy Palo Alto-based data company, Palantir. Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Our guest today is Fane Greenwood. Fane is a researcher at the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative Signal Program, where she focuses on drones, but also how other data-intensive tech can be used for humanitarian projects. Her latest piece for Slate and Future Tense is called Why Humanitarians Are Worried About Palantir's New Partnership with the UN. Fane, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. So I want to start our conversation with a discussion of Palantir, which is a company that does all kinds of things, not the least of which includes crime forecasting for police departments like in New Orleans and Los Angeles. Palantir's tech has also been used on the battlefield, like in Iraq, to predict the location of explosive devices. It's also been used perhaps in more anodyne ways to mine healthcare data, to look for uh, cancer patterns and, and, and things that can help physicians. And now... The U.N. World Food Program just this month shared it's entering into a five-year contract with Palantir to manage the tons of data it collects across the 90 million people it serves. So that's a sampling of kind of who Palantir works with. But maybe we can start off with, you know, what is Palantir and, you know, what kind of services would a company like Palantir provide to the World Food Program? So what Palantir 
does, as you mentioned, is that it aggregates a whole bunch of different data sources. It basically takes data from all, all these, uh, this giant, giant uh, range of sources and kind of pools them together, looks for correlations and patterns between them. And uh, companies, as you mentioned, use this for a lot of different purposes, but for the United Nations uh, purposes, what they really want is to find new efficiencies and better ways of doing what they do. So in this case, it's the World Food Program, which is one of the United Nations agencies. What they're interested in doing is basically bringing together data from all across the World Food Program, so across the entire organization. And what their goal, as they say it, is they want to reduce the cost of operations while continuing to serve their beneficiaries. And what that means is that, again, they're looking for ways to save money, improve the efficiency of what they're doing, and they're trying to do that by coming up with stuff they wouldn't have thought of otherwise by using Palantir software to combine lots of different data. Right. And so they produce a lot of data, I guess, like with with the the, the food program, they, they just they have a lot of data they're sitting on. And and right now there's just a ton of inefficiencies. Is that the issue at the moment? Yeah. So the issue. Yeah, exactly. So the World Food Program produces an enormous amount of data. It's a gigantic organization. They assist, um, as they say, over 90 million people in about 80 countries. And their claim is that, um, and they're not saying necessarily that they're incredibly inefficient now. What they're saying, or what they're, what their PR, what they're at right. least their uh, PR is saying, is that um, they want to look for small efficiencies that can lead to quote unquote big savings via using these Palantir soft systems. A way similar to how private organizations, the U.S. government, militaries are using them. Right. And so, you know, you wrote recently for Future Tense um, that, you know, yourself and, and others who look at kind of data intensive humanitarian projects and how tech can kind of, you know, work with or against uh, those those projects um, that are opposed to to this collaboration. Can you explain what your issue is? And, and it has to do with Palantir's history, right? It does. So part of the problem, so the big part of the problem is that Palantir does not exactly have the best reputation. Yeah. And that's baked on a lot of things. I mean, part of it is because the Palantir's origins were, in fact, with CIA money. The CIA founds fund startup companies in Silicon Valley. And um, it's also because the Palantir's technology has been used, again, by the U.S. military. It's also been used by police forces. So as you mentioned, in New Orleans, other locations. And um and from the United Nations perspective of humanitarian aid workers, that's problematic on a number of levels. So the United Nations adheres to um, a, a code of conduct or humanitarian principles. And the four big ones are impartiality, neutrality, humanity, and independence or operational independence. And what those mean in practice is that humanitarians have historically been quite leery of associating themselves with anything that can make them look less than independent. So that includes militaries, governments, other organizations. And there's a really practical reason for this. It's because humanitarians need to be able to access areas that are dangerous. They need to be able to go into conflict zones and not be perceived as being on anybody's side. Um, they really are reliant upon that access to do the important work that they do. Right. You don't want to be associated with the State Department necessarily if you're handing out food to people in need. Exactly. And it's also true that, you know, for the people in need, um, if they're going to be working with these organizations and accepting their help and, you or know, the if they're going, yeah, exactly. If they're going to be working with aid organizations. So for people who are in need or during disasters, um, they need to be able to trust these aid, or aid organizations. And they need to have, they need to really know these aid organizations are generally speaking going to be really hard, trying hard to do the right thing. They adhere to ethical principles, right? Mm -hmm. And 
the big problem with this Palantir association is that it's um, this Palantir link is that it puts that in jeopardy. And because again, Palantir has a really negative reputation. Palantir is explicitly known for doing things with data that a lot of people find unethical. For again, for example, predictive policing is very controversial, and that's what Palantir has been doing a lot of in places like New Orleans, I think Los Angeles, and New York City, helping police basically predict who will, who will commit crimes, kind of a pre-crime minority report type thing. Mm-hmm. Not exactly, com- obviously, right? But- and the, the complaint with that is is that they using data that already exists. They're often using data that's premised on racial profiling, and so it kind of perpetuates patterns where we see over policing in neighborhoods that leads to um, certain demographics continuously, you know, being jailed and, and harassed by police or or just over police where others neighborhoods are not um, because it's based on kind of historic data. Exactly. And that's another big concern with this WFP thing. Now, I should emphasize that WFP has said in their press releases, and I've repeated this, that they don't think that any personally identifiable information is going to be provided to Palantir. So they're saying that we're, we're going to make sure we only provide Palantir with data that can't be linked to people. But the problem with that is that although the WFP may think they're doing that, unfortunately, it's really, really easy to re-identify data, especially for Palantir, because Palantir's entire entire business model is based on doing that. It's based on kind of identifying people and identifying new patterns in ways that you might not be able to predict before you smushed all this data together into one set. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, it's our opinion that the World Food Program really can't confidently make that assessment that they're not going to be providing any personally identifiable information. And the problem there is that if we don't really know what the impact of this Again, because the goal here is to look for new sources of data. There's really very little predictability what will actually happen or what kind of outcomes will come from this. It's possible, in our opinion, that um, these conclusions that Palantir comes from could also lead to some of the same kind of unequal results that we're seeing from the use of predictive policing. Our algorithmic ways of, you know, figuring out who's qualified for benefits in the United States, we're concerned that those could be imposed on people who are served by WFP. And again, it's not that anyone would mean badly. It's not that anyone would be, you know, intentionally have to hurt people. We're concerned their over-reliance on this technology without you know, ethical oversights and some constraints could lead to these kinds of harms that nobody even intended but happened anyway. Right, right. And so, uh, but it seems like this is already happening. There's no way to really pull out. I mean, were there other companies that they could have chosen to do business with? Do you have any sense of how Palantir got their foot in the door with the with the World Food Program? We do, actually, because Palantir has actually been collaborating with the World Food Program since, I believe, last year, mm-hmm. or perhaps the year before that, I'll have to check, um, on a, a smaller pilot project. So the World Food Program has been Palantir working together for a while now. And the, I'm not entirely sure if there was another company that would have been in the mix. I, I'm not aware of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's possible there could have been. But um, that's part of the problem is there is a lack of communal accountability in the sense that there's nothing stopping the World Food Program from doing this kind of collaboration if they want to, right? Right. And that's part of the criticism is that even though obviously there's no reason, technically no constraint upon them not to do this, we feel that it really should have they really should have more more community involvement and more kind of community um, discussion of this problem or mm-hmm. what, what's happening here. So I do want to mention here as well. I do want to emphasize here that um, this isn't just about Palantir. Palantir is just one company. There's a whole lot of other examples of big corporations that are doing things with data that not everybody finds ethical, like Facebook, Google. Amazon are also doing big collaborations with humanitarian aid. That's becoming increasingly common. 
And it's very similar. Just because Palantir has an especially nasty reputation, that doesn't mean there also aren't big problems with those collaborations as well, potentially. Um, so I, that, that's kind of why I wanted to write this article. I really want to make sure that we're having this debate not just about Palantir, but also about, okay, what does it mean when aid organizations collaborate with these companies whose business models are based on, you know, grabbing people's data? Sure. I mean, the city of Berkeley right now, for example, is having a really interesting conversation about how to maintain its sanctuary city status while still using Amazon Web Services, which has contracts with ICE. Um, and so, you know, we, we see these kind of large companies that, that work in so many different fields um, start to kind of clash with the values of some of the particularly like municipal or, or civic minded projects that are also working with them and that they're kind of tethered to. And you also study drones, which uh, have obviously uh, been used for, you know, militaristic purposes and strikes and have killed, um, you know, many, many people and are also used for humanitarian purposes. And Palantir is clearly trying to position itself as a company that like, yes, it works with the military and it works with police departments in shady ways, but it also does humanitarian work. And I'm curious if you could kind of help us parse how technology or even technology companies may try to position themselves in both camps. Drone technology has been around since the invention of flight. So we've actually had unmanned aerial vehicles, one kind or another, since the Wright brothers, and actually before. But what's kind of new is that we haven't had small civilian drones for a very long time. And the problem is that we basically got these two types of drone out there right now. There's these gigantic, expensive military drones that can be flown from halfway across the world. It costs millions and millions of dollars. That are used, that, those are the ones that are used by militaries for airstrikes. But we've also got the ones I can buy on Amazon for 25 bucks that fit in my pocket. Are the, you know, the four small drones I have in my living room that have cameras on them that you know I, I bought on the internet. And that I, I fly. So right. the problem is that when you say the word drone, it, people conflate these two technologies in ways that get really confusing because it's not clear I'm talking about, again, $25 drone I can got in my pocket or the one that can be used to shoot people. And that's part of the issue with humanitarian drones in a sense is that, one, there are two different, the vast majority of drones humanitarians are using, almost all of them fit in that civilian category. And these are, they're, I mean, these drones are basically flying mobile phones. They, have not, they weren't invented by the military. Um, they use mobile phone components that are basically stuck on RC airplanes, and that's where they come from. So, but yeah, unfortunately, we have very little data on the actual numbers of humanitarian drone uses. I would say the vast majority, though, are data collection. So drone delivery is still pretty experimental, but data collection with drones is happening a lot. It's becoming fairly normalized because it works really well. Um, drones can be, these small drones can be used by humanitarians, you know, assess disaster areas, they can be used to kind of plan refugee camps, it can be used again, search and rescue, looking for people. So those are really important use cases. Um, there's a lot of great stuff going on to develop codes of conduct, ethical standards for that. There's a humanitarian UAV network. Um, it's done some great work on this stuff. Right. Um, and I, I've, I've been a contributor to that effort. Um, so there's, yeah, so, but yeah, I think the main problem though is again, there's this dif- distinction or differentiation problem between, okay, military drones and Civilian drones, kind of like discussing the difference between, like, let's say, a warplane and a Cessna. So one reason why I brought this up is because uh, drones, as you said, uh, do a lot of data collection. And I could envision a world where the humanitarian drone operation decides to use Palantir. And it just gets really, really confusing when companies like Palantir do this kind of... um, work where where they work with police departments and then they work with, uh, you know, the World Food Program. And 
it starts to get really, really difficult to parse um, because, you know, we, we definitely don't want to always associate drones with, uh, with military strikes um, because they also, you know, do a lot of humanitarian work as well as, as your research focuses on. Do you uh, have any thoughts on um, the way these companies kind of position themselves or, or working with the um, UN's uh, World Food Program or whatever? Like, it could kind of kind of dilute or make it more difficult to, to tell their story in, in any, like, single way. Drones kind of have a similar issue, it seems like. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a bunch range of problems there. So one is data aggregation. And, the, and this problem is that there's this big push towards open data, right? And open data is generally something I think is great. The problem is for a long time now, people have been putting data on the internet without thinking how it can be used in negative ways. So for me, it's actually less that Palantir or WP only flying drones in mass and more that they might have access to data sets that people either individuals or people working at WFP or whatever happen to have uh, drone imagery. So I'm talking about drone maps or stuff like that. And that data could then be aggregated with other data sources to, you know, produce conclusions or information that could be used to hurt people either inadvertently or intentionally. That's one problem. And the other problem is, again, there's this thing called surveillance capitalism that I think is really important that Sushana Zuboff has been doing a lot of talking about and also the concept of data colonialism that has been talked about a lot by certain scholars in recent years. And the idea there is that um, we're basically entering this new era where these giant companies like Facebook and Google and whatever are making their money off extracting data from human beings. We're basically, we're the raw material that, and they're making money off our data. We're kind of like mines. And the problem there is that, and Palantir also fits in this category, and the problem there is that, again, by collecting all this data for good purposes using drones or whatever, not just drones, satellites, aircraft, you know, cameras, mobile, social media, whatever, we're contributing to this system by basically making people visible to these giant corporations. So, and the question for me is how are um, humanitarians inadvertently or in- unintentionally contributing to these processes of both data extraction and, you know, and and the uses of the data, whether it's by a giant corporation who wants to figure out how to advertise to you, but also isn't safeguarding your data very well, or if it's in the benefit of a government that wants to figure out your demographics so they can, you know, figure out how to exploit you, or they can figure out if you're, you know, doing, you know, crimes against things they perceive as illegal or crimes against the state or whatever. So all these, all these huge dangers that unfortunately I don't think humanitarian organizations in general need to be more conscious of. And um, there are efforts underway to make that happen. There's a lot of a lot more talk than there used to be in the humanitarian sector about how to improve their awareness of this and improve data security. Um, groups like the Responsible Data Forum have released an open letter that I signed on to to Palantir and WFP, basically asking them to create um, a data advisory board or a tech advisory board. I think it's a really important step. So there's a lot of stuff being done and discussions of this. But um, yeah, I think the main point is that there's a lot of great things technology can do. So that's drones. That includes lots of other stuff, like, again, social media analysis. That includes mobile phones. That includes call data, detail record analysis stuff. Lots of great things we can do, but we're going to lose that advantage if we, um, one, use the use the technology unethically, as people are going to lose trust in us, and for good reason. We're also going to lose that advantage if the benefits that we're trying to get for people are then absorbed or kind of canceled out by the negatives of government control of data and also by corporate corporate control of the data. So, yeah, we need to be really cautious of this because, yeah, we're going to lose all these benefits if we aren't careful. All right, Fane Greenwood, thank you so much for joining us. It was great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. 
One final quick break, and then don't close my tabs. Some of the best things we've seen on the web this week. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, it's time again for Don't Close My Tab, some of the best stories we saw online this week. My tab this week is the cover story in Wired. The headline is, AR will spark the next big tech platform. Call it Mirror World. The piece is by Kevin Kelly, who's actually Wired's co-founder. And my eyes almost glazed over when I saw AR in the headline. You know, every tech company these days is launching some kind of AR app or product. Usually they do something dumb like allow you to see a cartoon character on your dining room table dancing around or something like that, or put a fake basketball hoop in your living room. What Kelly does is paint a vision of a long-run future where AR is actually a, a fully realized alternate reality with all the objects that we have in our real world but in digital form. Uh, he references the Jorge Luis Borges story where he imagines a map exactly the same size as the territory it represents. That's where Kelly thinks AR is headed. It's a really fascinating read. I have no idea if he's right or not. But if you want your eyes opened to why some in the tech industry keep trying to push AR, it's definitely worth a read. All right, I'm going to throw it over to April now for her tab. My tab this week is a story from The New Yorker, the recent issue. Uh, it's by Adam Intus. I might have pronounced his last name wrong, and Rowan Farrow. And it's entitled Private Mossad for Hire. And uh, it's a really fascinating story about the kind of uh, businesses that people who uh, worked for the were members of the Israeli military left um, after they did their their kind of required service and then went on to do kind of like special ops work for private hire, uh, including like setting up fake social media accounts and um, impersonating people and doing these like really extensive um kind of uh, smear campaigns on social media that uh, really have been uh, ruinous in local politics. Uh, particularly, it looks at one small town's uh, campaign around a hospital accountability project and and how uh, these kinds of private firms work so well and how they're able to instrumentalize uh, U.S. social media platforms because they're so incredibly unregulated. It's a really stunning story and really one of the best pieces of journalism I've read in months. Um, I'm not really doing a, a decent job describing it because there were just so many points that it hit. But, um, you know, one part that really stuck out to me in this piece is that the Israeli psyops teams uh, 
uh, particularly uh, focused on and had a campaign where they targeted uh, activists uh, in the United States who uh, are critical of Israel and about Israel's treatment of Palestine with an anonymous website and really defamed those people on social media. And there was no way of telling kind of where this website was coming from and where this kind of work that was uh, targeting um these activists was coming from, and uh, and it turns out that it was uh, these kind of like private psyops groups for hire. And what they kept stressing throughout the piece is that they can do whatever they want on social media. It's completely unregulated. And this is, of course, something that we talk about a lot in the show is that uh, really U.S. politicians have failed to either understand the power of these companies or understood it and have then just failed to regulate them properly. Um, And this was just a a, a really stunning example of some real harms uh, of not, uh, you know, taking kind of regulation seriously when it comes to uh, tech platforms. So I, I highly recommend this article. Again, one of the best pieces of journalism I've read in months. All right, that's our show. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hi. You can follow me and April on Twitter as well. I'm at Will Arimus. April is at April Laser. Thanks again to our guest, Fane Greenwood. You can find her on Twitter at Fane G, F-A-I-N-E-G. And thanks to everyone who has left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. We really appreciate your time. If you haven't done so, please take the chance to do so. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you want more of Slate's tech coverage, sign up for the Future Tense newsletter. Every week, you'll get news and commentary on how tech advances are changing the world in ways small and large. Sign up at slate.com slash future news. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Thanks to Alberto Hernandez for engineering in Berkeley. And thanks to Nick Holmes at Occupy Studios in Newark, Delaware. We'll see you next week.